The Athletic. They took the lead versus Southampton from a second phase of a corner. The equalizer against Chelsea was from a corner. The winner against Wolves was from a corner and they scored twice from a corner against Leicester. Hi there and welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm Ali Maxwell and the Premier League returns, doesn't it? It does so with some billboard fixtures, you have to say. Uh, last week we learned a lot about Roberto De Zerbi from James Horncastle, from Liam Tharm. Uh, we get our first glimpse of RDZ's Brighton side at Anfield. Of course, it's also the Manchester derby on Sunday and on Saturday lunchtime, the North London derby, first against third in the Premier League, seven games in, and that is what is on our agenda today. To chat about that and a bit of England, I'm with the returning Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. And uh, Leicester versus Forest, a bit of a derby as well on mm. Monday night. Don't forget about that one. Derby we haven't seen in the Premier League for a very long time. And Derby, County, we haven't seen in the Premier League for a very long time either. <laughs> so we've also got Ahmed Walid with us. Great to have you back on the pod, my friend. How are you? All great, Ali. Thank you. Um... I think the last time I was here, it was two years ago, like before I actually joined. That's so, yeah, right. It was, it was the 2020 Champions League final. So thanks for having me both. That was Bayern against PSG, wasn't it? And you, you taught us a thing or two. And, and now, as you mentioned there, you're in-house as football tactics writer at The Athletic. Uh, how have you been finding it? Yeah, it's been great. It's been lovely working with Michael, Liam, Mark, John, like everyone on the tactics team. Well, we've been enjoying your work so far. I'm going to touch on, on one of your recent pieces. Actually, I want to talk Calvin Phillips shortly because before North London derby chat, let's talk about England and Southgate Gate. Uh, Michael, I always enjoy hearing your take on England, on Southgate, on the whole narrative that surrounds international football, team selection, tactics, etc. This break was a particularly noisy one, particularly after the defeat to Italy. Uh, it felt like the final straw for some England observers, which isn't great with the uh, World Cup just uh, months away. So a general question, where do you stand on the England team right now and Southgate's grip on things heading to Qatar? Well, they haven't been playing well, I think that's fair to say, but I think people tend to overestimate how good you have to be to progress in the World Cup. I think really what England need to do is keep clean sheets, which against group stage opponents they should do. Um, and the lack of goals, I don't think is as much of a problem as some people do. I think when you look at the underlying metrics, actually England were creating a decent number of chances against decent opponents. Um, and it, you know, it was a it kind of summarised the expected goals debate, didn't it? England, I think, had had won something like five and a half expected goals in that Nations League campaign, hadn't scored, and then suddenly they score three in three shots. So mm. um, I don't think things are quite as bad as, as people think, but I also do get the sense that there's less of the kind of off-field harmony and positivity and those things that Southgate clearly brought to the side in the first few years. It does feel a little bit, everything's a little bit darker and a little bit less uh, less optimistic, I think it's fair to say. And so does that become heightened by what is often described as, shall we say, pragmatic football or the approach to England games used by Southgate, um, generally using or almost always using three at the back and therefore sacrificing an extra attacking player of which England have many? Um, you, you still believe that that is uh, an acceptable approach uh, heading into knockout tournament football? 
Yeah, I don't think it's going to be particularly fun. But I think when you look back at previous World Cup winners, they're generally not that exciting. They're, they're generally just good at keeping clean sheets. Um, and if you can nick a goal here or there, I mean, Kane has got a track record of doing it in tournaments. Sterling tends to play well for England. Um, and there'll probably be one extra place up for grabs. I think England have got enough to score here and there. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be a particularly exciting um, approach from England. Ahmed, I'm interested to know where you stand on this, where you're at currently with the England team and, and how you expect them to do in Qatar. Yeah, um, I agree with Michael. And actually, I've got another point. Like People sometimes overreact to games pre-tournaments. So maybe you lose a game or two pre pre-tournament but actually the tournament is what like six seven games to the final and that's it so maybe like a bit of good defensive displays you win by a set piece here and there you win by penalties here and there and somehow you're in the semis or in the final so yeah I agree with Michael it won't be like flashing possession play stuff like we see with like City Liverpool or Brighton but there is a certain concern I have like away from the personnel about Southgate that we've seen in the Euros in the Scotland group game and we've seen in the Croatia semi-final 2018 is that whenever England like go into the game and the opponent has like uh, an idea up of their sleeves that England were not prepared for like Southgate doesn't react. Mm. Michael you've you've certainly raised that before I guess my concern as well that we've maybe not touched on is if we're talking about low margin knockout football and set piece goals being the difference as they have been in in the past two tournaments for England well I'm not convinced that the defensive structure is looking all too solid at Michael. Maguire obviously is singled out, but it's a it's a team game. And defensively, there were a lot of moments of England looking pretty iffy in the last week or so. Yeah, agree. They don't have that cohesion there. Obviously, the, the identity of the defenders has changed. It looks like Eric Dyer is going to start. He's been playing very well for Tottenham. Um, but yeah, it's, it's less of a familiar relationship at the back. Um, I thought John Stones was playing quite well in that right of centre role. Then he went off. It looks like he's going to be out for a few weeks. Carl Walker didn't have a great time against Italy. So yeah, I, I appreciate there are question marks. Um, and yeah, I, I think England probably go into this tournament as I would say sixth favourites. Whereas I think maybe a couple of years ago, um, or a year ago, let's say, based upon their performances at the previous two tournaments, probably would have hoped they'd be third or fourth favourites. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I, I think uh, World Cup winners tend to be quite negative and I think they often tend to just stumble upon the optimum system midway through the tournament rather than having a great idea of what they're going to do two months beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, one positive, it's nice people take the Nations League seriously. I mean, a lot of people are saying it's going to be a complete nonsense a complete mm. nothingy competition but everyone seems very upset about England's performances in the tournament so uh, <laughs> I think that's quite nice to see in a way I think suddenly a lot of uh, a lot of writers were excited about the fact that the word relegation could be used as something of a weapon yeah. uh, when it comes to international football for the first time uh, a positive of the two games was certainly the performances of Jude Bellingham uh, in midfield alongside Declan Rice and um, Ahmed this is an interesting part of the pitch to focus on as well because Although I would say in general, there's been more focus on Trent Alexander-Arnold and Tamori in terms of selection questions. Uh, one option that Southgate didn't have here was Calvin Phillips, who is uh, having shot or recovering from shoulder surgery. Um, you wrote about the, the, the tactical reason why Phillips, if he doesn't make Qatar, would be a, a bigger loss for England than some people may think. 
Yeah, so basically Phillips uh, has the best of both worlds. He's great at the defensive situations in, in, in that position next to Declan Rice, and he's great on the ball in terms of passing and especially progressive passing. So mainly balls in behind or just switch of play from right to left. This aspect in possession is not Rice's great asset. So Rice is great as at pro- like a progressive carrying the ball, getting out of situations through dribbling, like just doing small neat passes uh, with with the defenders or the player next to him, but these long progressive passes or switches of play, like England will miss them heavily because of because if Phillips if Phillips misses the the World Cup, mm. it's an interesting one, isn't it, Michael? Because Bellingham, Phillips, Rice. Let's say Phillips is fit. You're looking at those three names really for two starting spots. Some people would say Bellingham's performances and his skill set make him a must start um and between phillips and rice it's kind of pick pick what you prefer as ahmed has mentioned uh, a a pretty press resistant screener in rice uh, and and phillips with much more of a passing range what what do you think you'd go for yeah i think it's a really interesting question i agree with what ahmed says and i think it's a, a for me it's a classic question of the concept of balance in midfield or or in any part of the pitch where if I'm listing the best three play, the, the the players in order, in terms of how much how highly I rate them, I think I'd have Phillips third out of the three. I just I think Rice is a really good player. I think Bellingham's an outstanding talent, but I think probably the best combination has Phillips in it. I just don't think mm. Rice and Bellingham really. I just don't think there's enough quality on the ball in terms of, you know, circulating possession in terms of progressive passing. They're they're a bit. Um, they're a bit more fluid, uh, I suppose, a, a bit kind of disjointed when they play. And I think Phillips at Euro uh, 2020 was close to England's best player. I mean, he, he he played a couple of different roles as well. At times, he was more like a, a box-to-box midfielder. And at times, he sat deep and, and tried to dictate play from deep. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm still slightly sceptical about Phillips. I, I just don't quite rate him as highly as some people do. Although, in fact, Manchester City him maybe suggests that that I'm wrong on that but I I do think he's got a place in in this England side and it goes back to debates at previous tournaments when we talk about players like Michael Carrick or Owen Hargreaves Mm. you know were they better than Lampard or or Gerrard no I don't think they were but England clearly played better when those types of players were in the team and let's use Harry Kane as a link between today's topics um he is playing up front for England under Southgate and Tottenham under Conte and uh, in terms of basic shape and uh, in terms of, of, let's say, pragmatism, there are some similarities with how the two teams play. Do you think Kane is a big part of the reason why, for example, Southgate feels he doesn't have to risk as much in terms of bodies in attacking areas? Because Kane is so good and at his best can both create for forward runners and be the team's main goal threat. Ahmed, do you think Kane's very qualities almost allow a manager to play a more pragmatic style? Actually, I, th- I think Spurs are way better in terms of uh, being expansive when compared to England, like not mm-hmm. in general. And something that helps Kane a lot at, at Spurs is Spurs build-up. So we've seen the goals against City uh, last season against West Ham, against, against Everton. Like that way you can actually benefit from Kane's ability to drop and link I think like Spurs use that way more than England. And this this aspect of uh, Kane dropping and linking play or creating for the forwards 
don't think it's used that much with England as Spurs. Is that, Michael, because Eng- nominally England's only run-in-behind type wide forward or attacking midfielder is, is Raheem Sterling, whereas Spurs have Son and, and now Richarlison, I suppose, would fit the bill as well. It, it's a... An interesting. It's always been an interesting question of personnel for Southgate in those attacking areas alongside Kane. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he and Sterling have generally had a pretty good relationship over the years in a couple of different systems. Probably worked best at World Cup 2018 when they actually played really as a strike duo. Um, I actually, I mean, I think the third attacking slot is very much up for grabs, and I think maybe Saka's played his way in actually after his his cameo appearance against Germany. Mm. I really like Foden. I think he's a brilliant player. I actually maybe slightly controversially think that if Kane is out in certain situations, Foden as a false nine might be a better replacement than a proper striker. But I don't think he's really played that well for England from the flanks. And Saka just consistently does. I mean, he came on and immediately there was a surge in field and linked up with Kane and he doesn't run in behind, you know, as much as Sterling as you imply. But I do think that forward running, that directness... Is really important and he, he came quite close to a late winner as well with a, a dribble in behind. So again, I'm not sure he's a better player than Foden or Mount or Grealish, but I think in terms of balance, in terms mm. of playing well for England, you should pick uh, the pick the pick the players who have a track record of doing it well for mm. England. But Mount is such a popular Swiss army knife, isn't he, for managers and uh it feels like every manager that that manages Mason Mount wants to find a spot for him in any starting eleven, and uh, and that is the spot for him, isn't it? Really, when you think about it. So, uh, lots of questions there heading into the World Cup, um, but now on to one of two big derbies in the Premier League this weekend: the North London derby, Michael Arsenal versus Spurs. Uh, between them, they've won eleven of fourteen Premier League games so far. Is that a fair reflection of their start to the campaign? Really quick out the traps, both of them. E kind of. Um, I think Arsenal have been much better than Tottenham so far this year. I think I always think it'd be quite fun if you just, if you didn't really see, if you never looked at the league table all year, but you did watch match of the day and watch games every weekend and had to guess where every team would be. I don't think I'd have Tottenham as high as they are. They feel like they've really um, struggled to get going in quite a few games. They've ground out a few victories, which is always in itself a good thing, but maybe not necessarily conducive to future good performances. So, yeah, I would say that Arsenal start as relatively strong favourites for this, not just because of performances so far this season, but when you look over the past 10, 12 games, of all the fixtures in the Premier League, this is the one with uh, where home advantage is the strongest. Arsenal mm. tend to win at the Emirates. Tottenham tend to win at, whether it's been White Hart Lane or Wembley or the new Tottenham Stadium. For whatever reason, maybe it's the fact it's a derby, atmosphere's more feisty, who knows? But there's a very strong, very high percentage of home wins in this fixture. I'd like you to answer more questions with E kind of. I think, that was, <laughs> I think that's what we're after. Uh, Ahmed, your, your piece out on Friday is focusing on Spurs, in particular some, would quirks be the right phrase to use about their build-up play, um, their tactics and the underlying numbers early on this season? So I I was actually surprised this season with how poor Spurs' build-up is because in my opinion, this is Antonio Conte's best phase in possession. Like we we all know his goals like last season, even with with his Inter team, how it's it's a build-up situation, but it, but how good it is, it appears as a counter-attack. So, you know, that uh, post he did on Instagram, 
asking if this is a counterattack and just putting the video of the goals against City. So there are two issues here for me. I think the first is mainly about the performance of the players and personnel. So having the Vincent Sanchez in your build-up instead of Christian Romero like is a major drop-down like for, from Romero. And this affects Tottenham's build-up. The second thing, like there are huge passing mistakes, like simple passes that are made wrongly from um, the Spurs players in the build-up. So these are the two like simple issues. So the tactical issues is that Spurs are are a bit predictable. So teams like after last season and probably like other teams saw what Conte did with Inter in terms of the build-up. So you've got the normal th- three at the back and the two in front of them, uh, Hoiberg and Bentancur, like three, two normal build-up. The movement from Hoiberg and Bentancur to drop into the back three, whether to like swap positions with any of the back three or just drop to make a back four, it's less this season. Uh, the first reaction when things don't go well is that like uh, Spurs stretch their first line and make it more a back four with one of the wing backs staying deeper than the other. This is something other teams like saw coming. And we know that Spurs want to access Kulusevski in the right half space because he's the best link uh, from mid- between midfield and attack. So yeah. teams are blocking that option. And in terms of Kane dropping centrally, most of the teams are having a player like deeper to like a free player to pick up like Kane if he's dropping, Kulusevski if he's dropping into the, into the right half space. So is this an equal issue between Conte's philosophies in possession and how he wants his team to build up and issues with the personnel within the team in terms of, let's say, the centre-backs and how comfortable they are on the ball? Or is it weighted, in your opinion, more towards the players, more towards the tactical approach? It's a bit towards the players and that they're still learning. So at the beginning of the season, when Conti was asked about the new players, he said they're still learning. The thing is, Conti depends a lot on um, automations in possession. So he trains actually these build-ups over and over and over again till the players actually know it by heart. Mm. So some of the players still haven't adapted. Some of the new players, I mean, Sanchez is, is way worse than Romero in possession. And another thing is that other teams uh, are figuring Conte's build-up patterns out. So if we saw the game against Chelsea, so Chelsea, like in, in, in terms of Chelsea's pressing, they pressed with a 5-3-2. Havertz and Sterling were mainly like moving uh, to press the, the back three of Spurs. Mount and Kante were on Bentancur and Heiberg. And Jorginho like behind them just to cover space in, in, in case like Kane drops or Kulusevski Kulsev- or or was trying to drop. And the major, major thing we saw is how uh, Reece James was man-marking Son. So this way, the, the, um, how Spurs want to build up, you're blocking everything. So you're blocking mm-hmm. the 3-2 build up, you're blocking Kulusevski and Son in the half spaces. So teams are slightly figuring them out in terms of how Spurs want to build up. So I think uh, one thing uh, Conte tried to do, and he did it before with Inter, is that Instead of building up with a three or um, a four with one of the wingbacks dropping deeper, he moves actually the center center back, which is Eric Dyer, up into midfield mm. and keeps the wingbacks deep. So it's actually more of a 4-3-3 build-up. I think he tried that against Leicester, not to much success, but this is something he did before with Inter and I can see him doing it in the future when the players adapt. You wrap that game against Leicester, Michael, and it struck me that 
you know, if you were to look on the Opta analyst numbers for the season, uh, you know, what we're hearing about Spurs is, is build up being a little under par. Uh, it doesn't necessarily tally with the numbers because they've had the, you know, fourth most or third equal most shots from open play, uh, fourth for XG, but very close to Liverpool and Arsenal here and 11 goals from open play, which is the, the second equal most with Arsenal. But is that game against Leicester doing a lot of heavy lifting there, do you think? Yeah, it is. They kind of outperformed their XG in that game really as well, thanks to Son with a couple of incredible goals. And I think that game really suited the way Tottenham play because Leicester are quite positive but quite disorganised without the ball and defensively. And I think they, they left space for for Spurs to break into and also allowed them to uh, to score a couple of quite easy goals from set pieces. So, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that game did suit them. I think there's an argument for saying that Arsenal play in a way that might suit Tottenham as well in terms of their defending rel- relatively high at the pitch. Um, so, yeah, they might turn out to be one of those sides who look a bit better against good opponents than they do against weaker opponents. And do you think if Antonio Conte weren't listening to this pod, he might say some of the things that we're discussing here are... a decision by him is basically some of the things we're discussing some of the ways of building up is the whole point of Conte's football and would point at results and say not going too badly is it yeah I I quite like it when Conte I don't know if you notice this whenever he answers a question Conte he starts with the word but yeah so it always sounds like he's arguing with the, the person <laughs> or that they've missed the point, which I think he probably would say about us. I mean, I think it's a slightly complex thing. I think it's easy to look at Tottenham and say, well, they're not playing that well this season. I think an obvious counter-argument to that is, well, they're not trying to dominate games. They're not trying to look good permanently in 90 minutes. But I think Ahmed's right in the sense that they're still not playing well. They're not doing those things in terms of breaking from back to front in possession as well as they were at times last season. So... um Yeah, uh, maybe he would say we are slightly missing the point, but I still think they've been a little bit underwhelming and a little fortunate at times to get the results that they have done. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the podcast dedicated to Manchester United from The Athletic. After what's felt like an eternity without Premier League football, it's back with a bang for United this weekend with the Manchester derby taking top billing. Join myself, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker every week, but particularly this week as we build up to what's probably the toughest test yet of United's newfound optimism under Eric Ten Hag. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to click follow and subscribe for access to all our episodes. Ahmed, Michael suggested there that that Arsenal's approach might be 
nicely suited to, to Spurs' approach. So we might have a really interesting tactical battle here. I wonder if Spurs may have looked at the way that Manchester United beat Arsenal earlier this season and sort of licked their lips a little bit. They might have thought, yeah, I think we can I think we can do similar things to hurt this Arsenal team. Exactly. So I predict that Arsenal will press high. So Arsenal, if we looked at their attacking third pressures this season per 90, uh, they are sixth in terms of uh, their position in the league. And if we looked at last season, they were fifth in terms of the attacking third pressures. So Arsenal are a team that presses high, but not not in all games. So they're not like uh, Leeds, City. Uh, so they choose the game that they want to press high. So I think the games that come to mind are uh, City's game last season at the Emirates on New Year's Day. Like they had different pressing schemes to to fight against City's different build-ups. And there's the game against Chelsea at the end of 2021 season, uh, where it's Stamford Bridge, and the pressing won them the game. They scored, um, Smith Rowe scored the goal from pressing. And there's the game away to United in November 2020. Also, their pressing scheme worked and won them the game. So Arsenal choose when to press, and I think they, they'll press Tottenham's build-up according to what we saw uh, throughout the seven games that have been played mm. that Spurs have problems in their build-up. So yeah, that could suit Tottenham if they had a good idea in their build-up. If they were great on the ball in terms of their uh, build-up phase, they can't break through this press and this will suit Tottenham, of course. But if Arsenal get it right, Michael, then that could be a real area or an avenue of, of attack for them. Um, how impressed have you been with Arsenal's press this season uh, and potential the, the importance of new signing Gabriel Jesus to it? He should be fresh here, having sat out uh, Brazil's international break. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, he's been excellent so far this season. I think the first thing he did this season, in fact, pretty much the first event of the Premier League campaign, because it was the first game, was he just single-handedly pressed high up against Crystal Palace, won the ball, dribbled through the defence and set up uh, Gabriel Martinelli, who should have scored. And that's really set the tone for his performances. I've been really impressed with him in almost every aspect. Um, it's not like he's a new player to the Premier League. We we know him very well, but I can't think of many examples of a player who's moved club in the Premier League and looks so completely transformed. Um, everything he's done has been good. His link play has been good. His finishing has largely been good, which was a bit of a criticism of him. Um, and I've been so impressed with his first touch and the way he uses his body against defenders. I mean, he just looks so strong. I mean, again, I can't really remember thinking that of him that much at Manchester City. But uh, yeah, he has completely transformed Arsenal. I think uh, these days it's not just goals you want from your striker, but it's also kind of epitomising the way the whole team plays with the ball and without the ball. And he's just a much better fit than Lacazette or Nketiah. You've had a good old look, Ahmed, at, at Spurs and build-up issues. When it comes to Arsenal and the way that they're looking to build up in particular, what have you made of, of how they're looking this season, maybe compared to last time out? Michael mentioned the arrival of Jesus, and I want to add the arrival of Zinchenko. I think Zinchenko helped Arsenal massively in terms of their build-up and in terms of their left-side rotations with Martinelli and Xhaka. So... We, we now can see like Arsenal building up, building up with a 3-2 shape with Zinchenko moving inside and Martinelli having the wing on his own, which allows Shaka to make those runs um, into the channel. And like we've seen lot, a lot of these runs that could have turned into goals this season. And also this rotation between the three, we can see Shaka dropping to the left back, Zinchenko inside and Martinelli wide or Martinelli inside. This offers some something of an unpredictable Arsenal on the left side, and mm. this helped them a lot this season. 
It's been really interesting, hasn't it, Michael? I would have thought, as an idiot, that Zinchenko signing and his as soon as you know, as soon as the first game of the season started, we could see Zinchenko tucking inside, moving centrally, inverted, if you will, uh, was going to become a thing. I would have thought that might have basically impinged on Xhaka and entered into his sort of territory and and meant that Arsenal might need a different type of player to to um, to kind of mesh with Zinchenko and the areas of the pitch that he was moving into. As it is, it's completely freed up Granit Xhaka. Yeah, he's pushed forward a lot more. I, I quite enjoyed Jamie Redknapp's analysis of the situation before, I think, the Manchester United game where he basically said, Xhaka makes too many mistakes close to his own goal. Just push him higher up the pitch so he can't <laughs> do that, which I kind of think there's some truth in it. Um, but yeah, it's worked really well. Those rotations down the left, I think, have been a really key feature of Arsenal's play so far this season. Um, I think they've been a lot more threatening, a lot more progressive down that side. Then down the right, where I think Saka's been a little bit quiet at the start of the season. I think he's picked up in the last two games. was good against Manchester United. Um, but yeah, down the left is is really where Arsenal are doing well. They don't really have the same dynamism down the right because they're playing Ben White there, who I think has, has done okay um, at right back, but isn't, you know, isn't really uh, an overlapper. He's not really coming inside into midfield. So it's a, a bit more static down that side. Mm-hmm. So if the left side build-up is going well, does that mean that even if Saka might not have been at his absolute best so far this season, is the idea, perhaps, Ahmed, that uh, by sucking teams over to the left-hand side, the idea is that the quick switch out to Saka as an excellent 1v1 player and able to combine with Odegaard, who likes to drift right as well into those spaces, is that potentially what Arsenal are looking for down their right side, do you think? Yeah, exactly. Definitely agree here. And another thing I think Arsenal... um, like should have worked on last season is that uh, their far post threat on crosses w- was non-existent. And now that you talk about it, if they suck teams to the to, to the to Arsenal's left side, it frees someone on the right side, so probably Saka to have a far post threat on the crosses. So in addition to the one v one ability of Saka and combinations with Odegaard, like that threat from the the far post in terms of crosses should help them as well. Michael, who? They've got a lot of potential absentees, don't they, uh, for this game, Arsenal. It's a real test of their squad depth. Uh, I am obsessed with Martin Odegaard. I just think he's one of the the most aesthetically pleasing footballers in, in the sport at the moment. And also, to my eyes, highly effective as well. Certainly no luxury player. Um, who's more important to Arsenal's... Who's a bigger loss, would you say? Him or Thomas Partey uh, in the ba- at the base of midfield? It's a tough question. I think they're both really important players. I'd say at the moment I'm not particularly convinced that Arsenal have a replacement for Partey. I wasn't impressed with Lekonga against Manchester United. Whereas from what I've seen so far, I have been very impressed with Fabio Vieira, who um, kind of brings some of the things that Odegaard does, a little bit of a different player. But uh, I'd be excited to see more of him. So I think maybe Arsenal would would choose to lock in Partey at the moment, not because he's a better player, just because I'm not sure there's uh, there's the understudy there. Okay, back to Spurs for a second and their attacking balance. Kane is a lock, Ahmed, is, is a non-negotiable for, for reasons that we have spoken about many times. But outside of Kane, Spurs have, have better options now than in previous seasons. You, you spoke a lot about the key role of Kulishevsky. Uh, we know about the threat of Son despite question marks over his performances this season. And Richarlison has been added to the squad over the summer. And it feels like Conte has some great options now, but is still potentially working out 
the best way to format this attack outside Kane. What are your thoughts on that final third balance? Uh, I think uh, Conte's uh, last uh, press conference says it all. He said that he will rotate. Like uh, He says that none of the four will play all the games and it will be just to rest them, to rotate them because we know Spurs have um, games in the Champions League and there will be the Cups as well and some of the players will play in the World Cup. So rotation will be key. But I think Kulusevski, as you said, is, is, is really important in terms of linking midfield with attack. I don't think Son nor Richarlison offers that option a lot. Uh, I would like to see Richarlison in the middle when Kane is, is actually benched or rested. I think that could be an option as well. Uh, like he, From an aerial perspective, he's great. He's also great on set pieces and he can make the runs as well. So yeah, that could be an option with Richarlison in the middle. Seems remarkable to even consider the idea of resting Harry Kane. One does not rest Harry Kane. <laughs> uh, Michael, it strikes me that between the three, Son, Richarlison, Kulishevsky, another tick in the Kulishevsky box is comfort playing on the right side of the pitch, in the right-hand channel or even out wide on the wing because it strikes me that Spurs, with Emerson down the right side, probably not offering what, for example, Perisic or, dare I say, Sessegnon offers on the left side going forward and, and therefore someone who can really have an impact and is comfortable on the right side feels crucial on, on, on that side of the pitch. Yeah, I think you're right. There was a curious bit just either side of half-time in the Leicester game where Conte switched Perisic and Sessegnon. So Sessegnon was on the right and I must say looking quite uncomfortable there. I don't know what that was all about, to be honest. Um, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think Kuduzewski... I think Spurs play better when he's in the side. I just think he brings a lot of things that they maybe don't have elsewhere. Um, I think he can drift inside and link, you know, in terms of combination play. I think he's really good in tight spaces, which I don't think Son is really. I mean, it's not his specialism. He likes open spaces where he can use his speed and play on the break. So I, I've been disappointed to see Kulusevski out of the side in recent weeks. I think the caveat to this is, if there is a game where you're going to play Richarlison, Son and Kane, maybe this is it. You know, the way they played against Arsenal uh, towards the back end of last season at Spurs, they just kind of blitzed them with, with you know, lots of runners, loads of pace, just attacking Arsenal very quickly and very directly. So I wonder whether actually this could be a game where it does make sense to use the three of them. Because, I mean, I think Son was deservedly left out because he hadn't started the season well, but then having scored a hat-trick as a sub... And again, the way he played against Arsenal, I mean, almost single-handedly won the game last season against Arsenal. I think he has to play here. So maybe this is a game where you will see the three, I suppose, outright attackers um, from the outset. And Kulusevski, I think of a, a slightly different player, deeper player, narrower player, uh, neater player. I think maybe he's more needed in, in games against teams who, who sit a bit deeper. One thing to, to add to what Michael said is that Richardson's aerial threat, not only in open play, but also in set pieces, I think it's, it's major for Spurs when you compare him to Kulusevski. Because when you've got Son and Kulusevski, like both options for crossing the set piece, but actually when you put in Richardson, he's an extra player in the box who can head the ball. Yeah, it's huge. And I mean, I've been, I'm excited for this fixture in terms of both sides build up, they're in possession stuff, moments of transition in particular, but also a good time to touch on set pieces because uh, five set piece goals for each team this season, only one conceded for each team this season. So really strong both teams on this front. Ahmed, tell me about Spurs' performance in that 
respect this season after the arrival of, of set-piece guru Gianni Vio? I think it's fair to say that Spurs won't be at the top of the table if they hadn't had Vio this season. <laughs> so they they took the lead versus Southampton from a second phase of a corner. The equaliser against Chelsea uh, was from a corner. The winner against Wolves was from a corner and they scored twice from a corner against Leicester. So, and one major key feature of these, of all of Tottenham's corners this season, even in the Champions League, are how they are using Kane at the far post. So they are playing in-swingers or out-swingers towards the near post and searching for a flick, someone to flick it towards Kane at the far post. And this causes some sort of dilemma for the opponent's teams because Spurs are overloading the near post, so the opponents want to have their best headers towards the near post, but Spurs have Kane at the back post. So the opponents need to drop one of their best headers to be with Kane because Kane's one of the best headers in the league in terms of set pieces. I mean, defending good deliveries from set pieces is hard enough. Defending flick-ons from well-delivered set pieces has got to be right up there for defensive difficulty. Michael, the thing with Arsenal is that they always try and head it in, isn't it? <laughs> they themselves have a very impressive set-piece Arsenal. Yeah, they do. Um, again, right from the start of the season, you could see... You could see that. Was it their first goal of the season? Was that really nice move? They played with a deep corner to Zinchenko, who you wouldn't have expected to be a target for a corner. And then Martinelli put it in uh, in the centre of the goal. Yeah, they. I mean, they've just done some really fun things. They, they keep on being inventive with set pieces. And I think it was against Manchester United where they tried a couple of things and they went wrong, actually. But... You know, you look silly when you when you play a short corner and you don't even get the ball into the box or whatever. But you do have to take those risks in order to, um, you know, create better situations. That's just the the nature of the game. Um, so yeah, I, I think this could be a key factor this weekend. I think it's a really good point for Mahmoud. We've got some great one v one dribblers. I feel like that's always something to bear in mind with those short corners because if you can work certain situations if, if if defensive teams aren't switched on enough and, and just give you a second of of, uh, of extra leash that's where those players like Saka, Martinelli etc can can really cause some problems outside of just slingy and good deliveries and and doing funky stuff inside the box do you think corners in general are more dangerous than a couple of seasons ago it feels a, a bit you know part of our chat with uh, with Rory Smith the other day about the way that the game has has uh, developed and, and new edges being found over the last few years yeah, I think there is a case for that. Um, I don't know whether that's because teams have put more work on on set pieces. Every club seems to have a specialist set piece coach now, which five or six years ago felt a little bit unusual. Um, so yeah, could be a topic for a pod in coming weeks, I feel. That's smart from you. That's very smart from you. So this game, Ahmed, you've obviously thought a lot about it from a Spurs point of view, that piece coming out on Friday. Um, Arteta spoke last season about games being won and lost in both boxes. It's something we hear managers say a lot. It feels from what we've discussed about the two teams' tactical approach and the home advantage for Arsenal that it's likely we'll see Arsenal dominate the area between both boxes, shall we say. Um, but in both boxes, who do you think's the team with, with the extra edge? Yeah, I think it's Spurs. And we've, we've seen what happened in the United game. So Arsenal had multiple chances to, to score, but, but they missed out. And there's the Saka chance in the second half. Uh, there's a, there was a cutback for Odegaard uh, that didn't, I think he missed it. And in, in, in these areas between the boxes, I think Arsenal will dominate, but like 
take care of, of the mistakes in possession because we've also seen in the United game like some mistakes in possession cost the Arsenal the game when, when the score was actually 1-1. Michael, this to me is one of those games that I'm always really excited to watch because tactically it feels like both teams have pretty clear avenues of attack and ways to win this football match and probably will have both of them the intention of, of doing so. It, it all seems very well set up for Saturday lunchtime. Yeah, I agree. And I think another key factor here is discipline. I mean that in a sense of of positional discipline and also just in terms of not getting into trouble with the referee because that's really where the two games were won and lost last year. Um, At the Emirates, Spurs midfield just went all over the place in the first 15 minutes and basically had lost the game, you know, midway through the first half. In, In the second game at White Hart Lane, Arsenal just kept on fouling Spurs and eventually went down to 10 men and again the game was over before half time so I think there needs to be a bit of patience a bit of caution a bit of discipline and just stay in the game because uh, yeah these ten, these games tend to start very quickly I think the North London derby is, is you know as I mentioned earlier with the home and away record it's one of the games in the Premier League that still feels like a proper derby um, and I do think players have to be aware of that not by getting up for it and being really aggressive but if anything I would say slightly the opposite just not getting carried away Ahmed been really interesting to to chat with you today thank you so much for your contributions to this pod and for making me pretty excited about this game thank you Ali we'll have you on again soon Uh, Michael good to have you back we'll be back again next week of course on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast but a reminder to become a subscriber so that you can read all of the written content as well theathletic.com forward slash tactics the best place to go for the most up-to-date offer on an annual subscription Ahmed's piece going live on Friday make sure you check that out Michael doing lots of good stuff as well as all of their colleagues been a pleasure we've enjoyed chatting to you today so join us again next week subscribe to this feed and we'll speak to you then have a good weekend The Athletic.